From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we explore our relationships to our siblings, as you're about to hear from Mary Catherine Bolster, Betty McDonald, and me. Growing up in 1950s Iowa, my sister Beverly, seven years older, was my de facto mother. When they were kids, he never forgave her for reducing his lofty, privileged, only child status to that of big brother. Mary's word is law, and the law is clear about not entering her bedroom without an invitation and to absolutely never enter her room when she is not there. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Stephen Lewis explains his arithmetic of writing a book. 300 words a day, Monday through Friday, will create 1,500 words in a week. 1,500 into 60,000 equals 40 weeks. A novel, a memoir. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Our brothers and sisters know us better than perhaps anyone, and, love them or not, our relationships with our siblings are likely to be longer than the ones we'll have with our parents, or spouses, or best friends. The longest relationships we'll have with anyone ever. If you love language and craft and a good story, you've come to the right place. We present three sibling stories on today's show and begin with Mary Catherine Bolster. Mary Catherine grew up in Iowa, but not on a farm. And she's been writing in one form or another since her first piece was published in The Compass, her high school newspaper. She holds advanced degrees in nursing and medical ethics and began her career on the clinical factory at the University of Iowa. Here's Mary Catherine Bolster, reported live at the Cell Theater in New York City, reading B-flat. Growing up in 1950s Iowa, my sister Beverly, seven years older, was my de facto mother. It was Beverly who sustained me through childhood tragedies, like my beloved Paracute's death when I was seven. She took the sting out of a grade school bully's cruel words, taught me how to make doll clothes from pastel flannel and satin ribbons while sitting on her big double bed. And when I mastered playing piano, we made music together. I would accompany her strong soprano voice, opera arias, Broadway tunes, church hymns. After she married and moved to Cedar Rapids, I married too, but I didn't stay in Iowa. I moved a thousand miles away to Philadelphia. Time, careers, petty jealousies, foolish misunderstandings, all of those eventually replaced our harmonies with silence. And I watched from a distance as sips of wine became her solace against the discordance of everyday life. Eventually, Beverly stopped singing, not in a church choir, not in a cappella group, nothing. And then, dementia. My sister died last year. Beverly was 75. On the subway platform, the B train rolls to a stop at 81st Street. I step into the crowded, hot car. I'm overdressed, can't move my arms to loosen my wool scarf, no earbuds to create a music bubble, 
no cell service to check hop stop, can't see the transit map, and can't move anyway in this throng of no eye contact, stone-faced New Yorkers. Why this journey? To see a vocal coach of all things. My new shrink, who I sought out in a last ditch attempt to find out why I'm still so angry with my dear departed sister said, performing makes you feel heard, connected, so do it. I found Jean through the Open Center catalog. 60-ish, thin as a rail, graceful, articulate, classically trained. She thinks I've got talent, should start auditioning again. Really, Jean, I'm almost 70. For half the lesson, she softens my rigid body using precise Alexander Technique cues, her fingertips barely touching my torso, my diaphragm freer with each breath. After a warm-up, I sing Sondheim, or Jerry Herman, or 18th century solos in Italian. Somehow my voice seems clearer, lighter, I'm lighter. For that one hour each week, there's nothing in the world but music, something to purge this anger. After the session, I rush out to get the Fulton Street Station with only five minutes to spare. Above the hum of the morning commute, I hear what sounds like organ or harp music coming from the terminal lobby. I walk up just as a lone violinist begins to play Guno's Ave Maria. My sister and I love this piece of music, this gem, a masterful combination of much-loved Bach prelude and the soulful melody Guno added years later. It was always a crowd-pleaser when we performed it for family gatherings or local weddings or high mass at St. Joseph's. I lean against a steel pillar in the morning light to listen and remember a summer day when I performed this piece in a clabbered country church, shutters opened to the surrounding green fields, Beverly's voice perfectly suited for the melody's range, filling every corner. I stay there, transported, slipping on my Ray-Bans to conceal the tears. I'm the sole audience for this pop-up performance. My train comes and goes. I still don't know why I'm so angry with my sister, but I do not walk away. I cannot. Not until the violinist plays the last luxurious B-flat. Mary Catherine Bolster has published articles in Unicode Quarterly and other medical and ethical journals. She's written articles for regional consumer magazines and national trade publications, and her company, MCB Communications, served healthcare and not-for-profit clients with capital campaigns, consumer and medical writing, and public relations. She lives in Manhattan, but from time to time still yearns for her beloved Iowa prairie. Writer and actor Betty McDonald contributed to the writing of and performed in TMI's What to Expect When You're Not Expecting. Her essay, Before Roe v. Wade, appears in the anthology Get Out of My Crotch, published by Cherry Bomb Press. Betty especially enjoys reading aloud and frequently reads her work at Spoken Word, a monthly gathering of writers and readers in Kingston, New York, and at TMI events in the Hudson Valley. Here's Betty McDonald on the Reed 650 stage in New York City reading First Love. Because he slips into her bed at night after he comes home from a date, 
because he's insistent. She lets him. She lets him because she adores her brother with the intensity of a little sister. She knows it's wrong. She longs for his approval. After years of ignoring her and putting her down, he's focused on her. She feels special. She tries to stop, but the lure to please him overrides her resistance. Her boundaries battered and porous from her father's incessant assault. She wonders if her brother is also the object of unwanted touching by their father. When she's nine and her brother 13, they're the same height. Their mother's nightmare, a shrimp of a son and a giant gangling daughter. At 11 and 15, they look like twins, twin nymphs. He's tall by then and handsome. They're so young, so fresh bodies like star-crossed lovers, like loving brother and sister, god and goddess in a Greek myth, in a Celtic myth in a Viking myth. So much alike, could you tell them apart when they were entwined in each other's arms? At a family gathering, their uncle remarks, you act as if you were his wife, not his sister. Is that just a snarky remark, or does he know? Does he know her fantasy, dreamlike, locked away secret, not to be revealed? her lover, a male version of herself, her exact counterpart. No one can know. Fortunately, what they share is forbidden. Without that inhibition, she would have lost herself in him. On the one hand, she's dragged down by the weight of the secret, the forbiddenness of it. On the other, she loves their star-crossedness, love that can never be, tragic story of it. Willingly, she promises herself she will welcome letting him go when he commits to someone else. When it ends, it's gone on for 10 years. They never speak about it. They don't even have a name for it. Later on, she tells friends, therapists, a 12-step group, anyone who'll listen. He tells no one. He doesn't admit it to himself. As he ages, he's diagnosed with Alzheimer's. When she travels from her home in London to visit him in the Massachusetts nursing home where he lives, he thinks it's 1950. He thinks they're still in their teens. She is the only person he recognizes. During these visits, they sit holding hands, saying little. She could say she feels their souls touching. She could say it feels like an electric current, but it's not like that. A powerful feeling like no other courses from his hand into hers. For years, she weeps, remembering the feeling of their hands pressed together. 
When they were kids, he never forgave her for reducing his lofty, privileged, only child status to that of big brother. She loved him unconditionally in spite of his cutting her hair off, sawing her tricycle in half, burning the end of her nose with a cigarette lighter in the new Chevrolet. Her cousin asked, do you remember when he held you down with a pillow over your face till you passed out? She doesn't. The last time she visits, she sits next to him, pressing into him. She holds his hand firmly. She wills their closeness to direct her words to what shreds of memory he might have left. I forgive you, she says. Do you understand? Yes, he says. I think I do. Following her career as a continuity writer and radio personality, Betty McDonald freelanced for many years as a travel writer. For the last 26 years, storytelling has influenced her work as a performer with Community Playback Theater, an improvisational acting company in the Hudson Valley. Her memoir, Basking in the Glow of Her Golden Years, is nearly complete. This is Fran Tuno, and it's my pleasure to introduce our next writer, Edward McCann. Ed is an award-winning writer-producer and the founder and editor of Read 650, celebrating the spoken word with live events and this weekly show. Here's Ed recorded live at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell Theater on West 23rd Street in New York City, reading Rotten Little Liars. It's 1970, and I am almost seven years old. My sister Mary, 10 years older, has beautiful, glossy brown hair long enough for her to sit on. There are six of us, but Mary teaches me to swim, pulls me on the sled, and takes me to Harvey's for French fries with gravy. She even teaches me how to brush my teeth, laughing when I mistakenly swallow the foamy rinse water, which of course I then do again to make her laugh some more. Mary's bedroom is my favorite place in the house and it's filled with interesting things like straw-covered Chianti bottles with drippy candles and a hanging mobile made from wire coat hangers. She has psychedelic posters and sketchbooks. She has a guitar and a record player. And sometimes we snuggle up together on her bed to watch Laugh-In on her very own black and white television. Tacked up near the ceiling and slowly making its way around the room is a long garland of chains she's made from hundreds of aluminum pop tops. It grows like a living, creeping vine, and I bring, I bring home every pop-top I can find, offerings for my beloved. Mary's word is law, and the law is clear about not entering her bedroom without an invitation, and to absolutely never enter her room when she is not there. Sometimes she secures herself inside and me outside with a hook and eyelash. The linoleum feels cool against my cheek when I plead my case through the gap between the door and the floor, begging to be allowed in. Staying in Mary's good graces is paramount because the best part of my world is the entree into hers. 
My older brother Jimmy is nine, and we're lying on our bellies at opposite ends of the long upstairs hallway, scooting matchbox cars back and forth along strips of orange plastic racetrack when the heavy front door slams. Mary's home from school. Coming through, she says a moment later, as she steps over me in her sandals and frayed bell-bottoms, disappearing into her bedroom. Seconds later, she's back in the hallway with a 45 RPM record in her hand, demanding to know which one of you was in my room. Jim and I both sputter denials. Okay, someone moved my record. I know where I left it, and it was moved, and one of you is a liar. <laughs> Suspicious of each other, Jim and I again profess our innocence before we begin accusing each other. <laughs> Haltingly, under interrogation, Jim finally admits that he saw me go into Mary's room earlier that day. I am so outraged by this lie that I respond with my own, insisting I saw him go in there. And not only that, I saw him take something and hide it in his room. You liar, Jimmy squeals, punching me in the chest. You're a stinking liar. All right, Mary interrupts. We'll find out which one of you is lying right now. Come in here. We follow Mary into her room, where she holds up a book she says is a Bible. <laughs> Obeying her commands, we place our hands on it each in turn, repeating the oath she makes up on the spot. Still, we continue lying, adding interesting new details. <laughs> we then watch in awe as Mary sprinkles talcum powder on the record, scrutinizing it for fingerprints. <laughs> Hold out your hands, she demands. <laughs> We're standing there before our sister, two little dummies with our palms up, when mom appears in the doorway carrying a stack of folded laundry. What's going on here? Somebody came in my room and moved my record, and one of them is lying about who did it. Mom sets the laundry on the end of Mary's bed. I moved that record this morning when I gathered up your collection of water glasses to take downstairs. Why can't you bring your glass down in the morning instead of taking a new one up every night? We're off the hook. Jimmy and I drop our hands to our hips and glare at our big sister. Jim wants an apology. But his demand prompts only a single bitter big sister laugh. Ha! I don't have to apologize to either one of you because you're still a couple of rotten little liars. Ed McCann is a regular feature writer for Milieu Magazine. His features and essays have been published in many literary journals, anthologies, and national magazines, including Country Living, Better Homes and Gardens, Good Housekeeping, The Irish Echo, The Sun, and others. He lives and writes in New York's Hudson River Valley. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Mayer, Karen Duquesne, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show is produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We will be back after this short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. 
Support for Read 650 comes from Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in New York City. Dedicated to the incubation and presentation of new works by emerging artists, The Cell has produced over a dozen critically acclaimed world premieres of new plays and musicals and serves as a home base for a large community of resident artists and organizations, such as Blackboard Reading Series, Artists Without Walls, and Tribeca New Music. View details and performance schedules at thecelltheater.org. Stephen Lewis understands a thing or two, or three, about writing. During a lifetime spent on his craft as a poet, memoirist, essayist, novelist, and as a teacher and mentor, Stephen knows in his bones the discipline and commitment required to drive a manuscript all the way through to completion, and that beneath discussions and explorations about scene and voice and arc lie some cold, hard numbers. The word count. On today's Between the Lines segment, Stephen shares his formula for what he calls the 15-minute novel. A few years ago, I was about to lead a week-long workshop at Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute titled Five Days, 10,000 Words. The students from previous incarnations of the class had renamed it the Boot Camp because of the extreme demands of the week. So to grease the skids for the newbies, I decided to begin each session with a 15-minute in-class writing exercise. My intrepid writers began by silently reading, no editing allowed. The last few pages of the 2,000 plus or minus words they had completed at home the day before. Then at the assigned time, they would begin composing directly from the last completed sentence in their stories. There was only one rule. Do not stop writing to edit yourself, ever. And when 15 minutes were up, the staff sergeant, me, would tell them to stop, and the traditional workshop would officially begin. The result? Each writer in the group composed, each day, between 250 and 400 new words in each of those 15-minute segments. And not just words, but good words, very good words, some very, very good words, and not only that, they advanced their plots in remarkable and at times unexpected and prescient ways. The phrase, beyond my wildest dreams, comes to mind. So does flabbergasted. The writing was that good. So now that I'm done with the backstory, let's move ahead to what I'll call the arithmetic of writing. With the experience of seeing how many good words can be written in 15 minutes, and knowing that many contemporary novels are in the 60,000-word range, I did the math. 300 words a day, Monday through Friday, will create 1,500 words in a week. 1,500 into 60,000 equals 40 weeks, a novel, a memoir, and that's just writing 15 minutes a day, far less time than you'd spend reading or meditating or cycling, running, lifting, yogaing, cleaning, coffee breaking, smoking, procrastinating. And at the end of 40 weeks, you would have a manuscript that has some real weight, actual weight, real world weight, and more important, you're not going to be staring at a blank page. The book you always plan to write is written. Of course, then the hard work of toning it down and gussing it up would begin. 
probably another 40 weeks, maybe more. But who's counting? Stephen Lewis is a longtime freelancer and longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty. The author of several books and many op-eds in the New York Times, LA Times, and elsewhere, he's a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine and senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read 650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, is published by Moonshine Cove. You can learn more at stephenlewiswriter.com. Between the Lines is a weekly feature of our show, and it's the place writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. We'd like to hear your thoughts, too. Click the Submissions tab on our website for details, and you'll also see submission calls for upcoming shows. That's at read650.org. That wraps up our sibling show. Thank you again to writers Mary Catherine Bolster, Betty McDonald, and Stephen Lewis, and to our announcer, Fran Tuno. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. 